Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Alex. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have, uh, we've just figured out, we sort of compared notes and figured out where we had met in the past. Um, And uh, and so I'm delighted to uh, sort of reconvene our conversation. Um, It's... uh, it's you and I share some common threads here in the state of Pennsylvania that may came come up. My uh, one of the things I recently shared with a previous guest from the Lehigh Valley is that my children were actually both born in the um, uh, two of my four children were born at the St. Luke's Hospital. So uh, we know we know the uh, Lehigh Valley pretty well. Uh, before we dive into our conversation today, Alex, how about we just uh, just ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure thing, Jason. And uh, yeah, actually, my I was born at St. Luke's, and my son was also born at St. Luke's. Uh, so, oh, no kidding. Yeah, lots of yeah, lots of connections there in the Lehigh Valley. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Thank you, uh, Jason. It's a pleasure to be in your company uh, this afternoon. And uh, you know, been you know, feel like long time listener, first time caller here because I've been following your stuff on LinkedIn and the podcast. So thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm Alex Dabkowitz. Uh, I live here in the Lehigh Valley region, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a donor relations director. Uh, Reed, that's a major gift officer uh, with the Salvation Army in Eastern Pennsylvania and Delaware. Uh, so I primarily work out of the Philadelphia area, uh, spend a good amount of time in this part of the state. Um, so, you know, a little bit about me. I've, uh, you know, I've been in been in fundraising in one form or another pretty much my entire career, which has not been particularly long, about a decade or so, um, minus a couple of years I spent as a freelance writer, a swim coach, and a couple other odd jobs before I accidentally stumbled my way into a development associate role with, a, with the human services organization uh, back in 2011. Um, 
So yeah, I've worked, uh, you know, I've worked in a few different capacities and, sm- you know, a couple smaller shops. Uh, I'd say the Salvation Army is one of the bigger ones I've worked in. Uh, I've worked across, you know, marketing communications, uh, you know, so little bits of web design, grant writing, uh, foundation, corporate relations. Um, and, you know, probably pretty much over the past five years have focused, you know, pretty, pretty much exclusively on, you know, on major gift work and, uh, you know, a little bit of corporate relations work here and there. So uh, it's a great, it's a great career path. And uh, yeah, excited to, uh, excited to be here today. Yeah, you know, I haven't talked to uh, Alex. I haven't talked to anybody in the Salvation Army in a long time. We've had a couple of Salvationists on the uh, on the podcast, but it's probably been it's probably been a couple hundred episodes. I've got to say, um, and I certainly haven't talked to anybody from the Salvation Army since the uh, since the you know sort of how we all navigated the pandemic. What is the sort of the the story there at the Salvation Army as it relates to the pandemic? I mean, is there, is there any sort of uh, in, in, in enlightening sort of realities that you guys sort of all sort of came to or anything like that in great stories? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, it was, it was crazy. I started at the Salvation Army in the middle of the pandemic. So that was, so I got thrown right in at year end, which is the craziest fundraising time for the Salvation Army outside of the red kettles. You usually see it, you know, Walmart and Macy's and uh, those sorts of places, um, you know, local supermarkets. You know, the, the interesting, I think the interesting thing starting at the Salvation Army, you saw, you know, a major uptick in generosity towards, you know, what we do at our core community centers, though. Uh, you have one in, in York. We have one in Allentown in a lot of other cities. We manage a lot of other programs, but obviously, you know, the needs for, you know, there's food insecurity, um, you know, folks struggling with homelessness. I mean, that's always something we're dealing with. But I think the pandemic, you know, really shone a light on, you know, kind of how fragile everything was. Uh, and I know that our divisional commander, uh, had made a comment to the effect of, you know, when he would, when he was looking out at, you know, the food lines, they would get longer and longer, but the cars were starting over time over the first four to six weeks in that March, uh, you know, 2020, April, 2020, the cars were starting to get nicer, you know? So I think the Salvation Army has always stood behind the fact that, you know, a lot of the folks that come to us never thought they would be in a position where they need assistance. And, uh, you know, we do, we offer, you know, that assistance, that help, whether it be, um, you know, through feeding, through, you know, a night of shelter. We, you know, we offer, uh, you know, things like, you know, emergency rental assistance or help paying a utility bill too. And that's all done, you know, kind of at the local, at the core level. Um, so the folks that came to us, I think initially, you know, plenty of people that have used our services before, but others that thought they would never have to, you know, stand and, you know, and, and ask for help. Um, and, you know, we're just, we're thrilled, we're, we're grateful uh, to have the capacity to be able to do that for, for those who need it. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, that that makes me uh, that reminds me of an experience. I remember being right in the thick of the pandemic. This was probably late summer of 2020. And I remember my wife and I and our children were in a local shopping center that's that neighbors the uh, the local food bank. The food bank had recently purchased an old uh, Kmart, you know, old, old Kmart and turned it into one of their primary distribution centers here in York. And I remember the number of cars there i remember sort of snapping a photograph and posting it on uh you know on on facebook probably or something and so just sort of reflecting on the number of people that were in line um and i and i can probably as I, as i'm thinking about it now i'm i'm sort of i'm sort of recalling the same sort of observation that the mix of of cars for example was very different but it, it honestly it was the it was the volume right it was the number of people that were sort of coming out yes. Yeah. Um, in, in response for needs. So, um, yeah, that's pretty extraordinary. Um, Alex, you know, this, you've listened to the podcast for quite some time. You're, uh, you're, you're a familiar listener and, and I appreciate that. We always invite our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. 
I don't usually know. I I don't know where you're going to take us today. Usually that makes for a, a fun conversation. Um, you said before we hit the uh, record button that it may not be the, uh, you know, whether it measures up, I don't know. We'll, we'll push it up. We'll push it up, brother. Uh, so uh, what do you got for us today? All right. Well, yeah, I think and I said that jokingly because, you know, what I planned to talk about, Jason, was something that I think I, I was on LinkedIn a little earlier and saw an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy published, you know, about this. Not exactly the same topic. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think this conversation to me is a little bit timely based on what was published in the Chronicle, which is about, you know, job dissatisfaction, understaffing turnover amongst fundraising professionals. And I feel like, you know, in our field, you know, the Chronicle or somebody like it is pu- is publishing the same article every, you know, once every year and has been maybe, you know, since like I was born in the 80s. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but, you know, what I wanted to talk about a little bit, I think, uh, is the job search process itself uh, for fundraising. And I'm using this for my own personal experience, you know, of how, of how kind of bizarre and challenging it could be. Um, you know, and I think, you recommended a book to me called uh, called uh, "Consumed" by Benjamin Barber, um, yeah. which is a which is a great read. Uh, I've gotten I've gotten far enough in it, but Benjamin Barber makes this point about how you know kind of the consumer economy you know infantilizes adults to some degree, and I think there's no like there's nothing that I've seen like over my time, and I graduated in the middle of the Great Recession, oh eight oh nine, um, where it was brutally challenging to find a job, and I've seen nothing that really to me infantilizes adults like kind of more than the job search process to some degree. Um, you know, and I think at the time when I graduated, you know, adults were kind of being like taught or you're reading content on LinkedIn that's kind of teaching you to beg for approval and jump through hoops for, you know, the the ludicrous number of interviews and skills tests and time consuming assignments, like being asked to write an entire fundraising plan, you know, that you're just going to hand over to, a, you know, to, to a nonprofit in the hopes that they'll hire you. Um, so, you know, since the Great Recession, and that's, you know, 10, 15 years ago at this point, and, you know, the time during which I graduated from college, you know, I, don't, I really don't feel that the process for candidates, especially in, you know, nonprofits or fundraising has improved a lot. Um, and my, I really contend that there needs to be kind of a wake up call to hiring managers on how to best recruit and retain fundraising talent, uh, as a chronicle probably talked about it a little bit. Yeah, but simultaneously, I think candidates also need to really keep their eyes open, as I kind of have started to as I've interviewed as I spent, you know, how many years interviewing in the nonprofit space, you know, to keep their eyes open to red flags and warning signs of, you know, maybe not dis- dysfunctional cultures or just cultures where you're not going to be allowed to thrive and do what you like. Um, you know, and I tie this, in, I know I'm rambling here, but, you know, I just want to say I tie this back into Benjamin Barber's thesis again, you know, as a candidate, you know, look out for if your interviewer, interviewer is talking about fundraising, you know, how are they talking about it as a relationship business or are they using, you know, strictly consumerist language, for instance? Um, you know, and, you know, as you as you would say, probably, I know you're three lanes and everything like that. You, you have to pay attention, I think, as a candidate for, you know, for an interview where the obsession keeps coming back to shallow sort of those lane one fundraising tactics. Um, yeah. And simultaneously, I'd say, you know, EDs and board members, you know, and I use this, you know, a lot in small shops, you know, they need to understand if they're having trouble finding or retaining talent, you know, in a lot of cases they need to really only look in the mirror. You know, I think back on that probably that event that you and I met at and I I'm reflecting on some of the argument that I made in that first book and, and I'm reflecting on your, your thoughts about sort of where this all has sort of come to today. And, and I saw that same article that you're referring to. I think we're referring to the same article that just came out. Yes. And and they tend to sort of rehash the same story and the same sort of, they, they sort of study the same sort of pattern of, of behavior that seems to get told every couple of years um, it, 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 at least. And I kind of wonder if is Alex, is there a more discerning one of the things that I've talked a lot about here on the podcast and elsewhere is 
is the fundraiser becoming more discerning about where they're landing in place, whether or not they're landing in places that can actually set them up to for success. Because I think that's, uh, and I think back on even some of my conversations in particular during the pandemic, and I just wonder if, if part of the challenge that happens with all this turnover and, you know, in, in you're sort of, you're referencing Barbara's work, the idea of sort of, do we all need to do a little growing up? I think the fundraising professional as a whole needs to do yeah. a lot of growing up. Um, and, and some of that growing up is 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 in my mind about the idea of knowing that Alex, when you when you interview, like you're suggesting, when you some of the questions that are asked of you in that interview process, do these people even know what they're talking about? Does this boss, or does this border boss, even know? <laughs> do you follow what I'm saying? You see the, um, I know where you're going. I, I think we're going in the same direction. Yeah, <laughs> no, I no, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging because there's there. I, I've you know, again, I when I graduated in the, during the recession, I mean, I interviewed quite a bit. It was not easy to find a job, and it's yeah. at that point I was probably you know interviewing more and you know for profit. I was looking to get into more of you know Marcom, you know, sort of role where I could do a lot of writing, honestly. Um, and you know, I obviously stumbled my way into sort of a different career path. But uh, you know, things I didn't know in say 2011 when I interviewed for you know my first you know fundraising job, quote unquote. Um, you know, it's interesting is like I got you get farther along and, you know, where I was looking to perhaps change jobs in the past or something, you know, and, you know, one of, I have a couple examples that always stood out to me that that were really like kind of bizarre. And, you know, one was that when I was more in the, you know, and more as a working as a grant writer and I was interviewing at a, you know, a local college, you know, a local college for a grant writing role and sat down at the interview table and, you know, and, and the two interviews there, the two interviewers just had, you know, a list of questions and they didn't look up at me for the entire time. And not only that, before I was even allowed to interview, they're like, yeah, we need to go ahead and, and you're going to need to, you know, go ahead and uh, do this like 30 minute exercise in Microsoft Word so we can like really see that you know how to use Word. And I'm like, yeah, well, how sure. did you think? How, what was I writing grants on then? I mean, like, <laughs> so between that and, and another interview where it was the same kind of situation for actually like an advancement manager, which was, you know, sort of at least a mid level or a major, major gifts role you know, get through the whole interview and I put my salary requirements in the, uh, you know, in the application. They're like, yeah, actually the, the, the salary we're looking at is about, you know, 10 to $15,000 less. Like, would you be cool with that? That's so, you know, and it's kind of odd to be like, you know, to, to be asked and kind of treated like rudely like that. And I think you're right. You know, people, I think folks now, you know, I, I was a political science major, so I didn't go, I didn't come out of college knowing what fundraising was or, have right. any idea what it was really um and i think you're probably right maybe as younger generations are getting into it um you know for instance a couple a couple of younger folks i work with in the office you know they went to school not they went to school with the intention of ending up at least in a non-profit sort of sector that was the goal you know working in a fundraising shop so they're going to be more discerning i hope um you know my goal is to you know my goal will be to teach people who are looking at career uh you know if they listen it would be like look for these warning signs where somebody treats you poorly in an interview and understand that you know that's the best you're ever going to get treated in that job. And just because the mission's great, that's not going to make you most nonprofits have great missions. It's not going to make you happy. Hmm? Yeah. And the, the, I think the, I think the other thing that I think more of us are sort of waking up to again, and I don't know if this has to do with, I don't know if this is sort of a pre pandemic sort of reality, or if this is uh, something that sort of happened as a result of the pandemic, but um 
there's a there's a what I what I oftentimes refer to as sort of this qualitative turn. So I think we're I think we're seeing that if we're going to sign on for these jobs, are we going to sign on for jobs that are heavily metric focused or that, you know, it's all about the quantifiable dollars in dollar, you know, uh, dollars raised um, or are we are we actually are we actually interviewing for jobs where there's a qualitative there's a commitment to a qualitative sort of experience for both the donor, but, you know, and also for the fundraiser. I think we're, I think so often fundraisers are signing on for jobs where, um, you know, I, I said this to my students recently, uh, you know, you can be perceived in a lot of settings like a tool. And I think too often, I think too often fundraisers are signing on for jobs with employers where we're just sort of a mechanism. We're just a tool. We're just a, a, a sort of a, you know, a bolted on sort of machine and we're not there to experience something meaningful and therefore we can't create that meaningful experience for our donors. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, no, I, I, yeah, I love what you're saying, but it's, it's kind of funny because I feel like the language like that you're using is it starts in the job descriptions themselves and like, even at yeah, bigger shops, are, like right. even at bigger shops, like you go to look at like, you know, a liberal, a liberal arts college, like there's never, I, I gripe about this one the occasional times I post on LinkedIn. This is the biggest, th- these are kind of the biggest <laughs> topics I gripe about. I know it's, I know it's a nitpicky thing, but I mean, how many, how many JDs, Jason, have you read where, you know, all you see about major gifts will carry a portfolio of 125 donors will be expected to make 80 to 100 visits per year, must submit two proposals in, you know, each month, must have experience closing many five, six, and seven-figure gifts. Like, again, where's the joy in, like, if you're trying to attract talent, I mean, start there. I mean, I read a great JD for a, for a major gift fundraiser, I think, at a college in Erie, PA the other day, and it was like a one-paragraph thing, and it pretty much said, you're going to carry this portfolio, and here are like three or four key skill sets that we think would be really helpful in this role. We hope you apply. So almost you could be looking backward to like the 1970s, like advertisements in a newspaper where, you know, it was one paragraph and just says like, you know, here's what you're doing. Apply within instead of, as you said, I mean, it's kind of deadening to know that everything you, all the, you know, it's just the, the one size fits all kind of KPI line, which is sort of, I think if employers started there to begin with and, you know, worked through their interview process to like actually make it a pleasant experience and to think a little more deeply about, we're trying to hire somebody who understands major gifts or wants to work in major gifts like why do we keep coming back to talking about the golf tournament or the newsletter and those sorts of things so i'm, I'm on <laughs> yeah. two different po- i'm on two different points there but um again but, i think the, yeah but, but you're but you're really not and and you know the, the that's one of the reasons our consultancy uses the three lanes for example i think there's some of the conversations that we're consistently having a lot of my guests whether they were familiar with the three lanes that we use at our consultancy or not they're starting to sort of wake up to the idea that that lane 1 fundraising Lane one fundraising is oftentimes better outsourced, meaning it doesn't need to be a job description because there's somebody that you can, you know, you can contract out direct response. You can contract out your special event planning. You can contract out, you can contract out so many of these things. And so like one of the, you know, one of the simple rules that we've embedded in our three lanes is that the first fundraiser on the payroll, whoever that individual might be, starts in lane two. That's some of the stuff I would have been teaching at that seminar that you and I met at a couple of years ago. I remember that very clearly. I tell you, I sat through two sessions of that because I was like, yeah, this is, you know, I was in a past position and I was like, and I wasn't, you know, in a role where I I mean, I was in a good role at that point, but I was like, yeah, this guy, he he gets it, you know, exactly. 
Yeah, well, because what, 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 and this is just practical economics, and this is just sort of thinking about ROI and the way that we design fundraising. You know, lane one fundraising is designed oftentimes to acquire that first gift, but it's not necessarily ever expected to create an extraordinary margin, if a margin at all. And so you're better off, and you're not creating those meaningful conversations. You're just, you're just igniting that relationship at its very, you know, elemental sort of fundamental sort of point. And, and so if we allow if we allow our friends in direct response for example to assume that responsibility and we as fundraisers stop getting our professional identity sort of wrapped up in all those things that play out in lane 1 then we can actually enjoy the work in lane 2 um but that's you know and and I've talked about this a lot too I I feel like I'm sort of rehashing my book the argument I made in that book but I drew that line between you know the initial gift and the subsequent gift I think if we think I think if we think back to your original point here Alex the more we as fundraisers can kind of make sense of the fact that the more you're focused on securing the donor's subsequent gift anything other than the first gift the more opportunity you're going to have to thrive the more meaningful the work's going to be the more likely you're going to um you know the more likely you're going to meet the expectations of your your employers but if your your employers don't know how to make that distinction and all they're saying is is bring in new donors and new dollars you you're you're almost guaranteed to to be set up to fail you know what i mean yeah exactly i mean and i yeah i you know i reread or at least re or at least skimmed your uh, book again over the past couple of days and uh <laughs> you know i found you had a, you you did you know spend a little bit of time talking about you know again i think the employer and i say this is like employers to some degree you know the, the Chronicle can write this story every year, but employers have to start to, at some point, they got, I mean, they're going to listen, right? I mean, they got to start because I've, I've, you know, I, I, I worked for, I started my career in a smaller organization. So I didn't start in like a university or a healthcare setting. So I sure. you know, started in kind of the thing where I just kept asking for more responsibility, um, just to learn a bunch of stuff that I was interested in. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's challenging because I, you know, I, I see the smaller orgs around here and they do, you know, fantastic work. But when I talk with it with EDs or you know folks I know there, it's the major gifts is always they're like, oh yeah, we really want to start a gift planning program. We really want to start a major gifts program. But every time when you know they they seem to have you know some trouble finding and retaining talent. But you know the the, the, the folks that the folks that want to stay on, they want they they were brought on say to do do major gift fund or at least try to develop some relationships with donors. But invariably, you know, a board member gets involved or something gets involved and they invariably get pulled back into a golf tournament, um, you know, or a mate or some kind of a special event. Um, and that's, yeah, you just, it's tough, it's tough to thrive. I get it's tough to thrive in that environment. Um, and I guess maybe it's tough, you know, even if you're the ED or something to be courageous and say, look, this is a slow process. Um, you know, instead of in the interview going back to the same things about, oh, we need somebody to write the newsletter. You know, we raised 100 grand at the golf tournament last year. This year, we're going to raise 150, which is not backed up in reality. You have to have the courage to kind of stand up and say, look, this is a slow process. This is two to three years here. But the person we need to be out there doing the work is not just not just somebody who's out hitting up networking events and things like that, which is what I think, you know, that's a misnomer on fundraising, too, or where you think, oh, well, where those hiring think that the person who's the most connected in the community, you know, is going to be your, is going to be your seeker weapon. Cause what folks are looking for is predictability, but you don't get that out of, you know, you need to be patient to kind of get those things going, but that'll be rewarding, you know, 10 times, 50 times in the future. Um, uh, Sorry, Alex, Alex, up, but... 
Alex, I told you, I told you before we hit the record button that you would probably say something insightful and you wouldn't even know it. I want to zero in on your, the question you're raising, which isn't really the question you came with, but it's this idea because you're zeroing in on this article that the, the Chronicle of Philanthropy very notoriously publishes at least every couple of years, if not annually in some sort of, um, and, 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 and it's kind of the suggestion or the implied idea that that employers I don't think employers are necessarily reading those articles and does the chronicle sort of know and is there some sort of a it's not it's not the employers that are reading that article it's it's the fundraisers that are reading that and is that is that conversation even necessarily helpful do you follow what i'm asking yeah, I do. I mean, I think, yeah, it's like, I, I was, I was at a, I think it's, you know, the joke on like, you know, journalism, Twitter is that the journalists kind of all talk to each other. So the Chronicle is, you know, for, you know, is by fundraisers for fundraisers. So, yeah. I mean, how, how many, how many EDs, especially if you're stretched thin, like I, like I have sympathy for this, having worked in like a smaller shop, if you're stretched thin, like how many your ED or your board members, like how many of them are going to sit down on the weekend and be like, hmm, yeah, it's about time I pick up the Chronicle and really right. like zero yeah. in. Yeah, they're not they're not reading that article. And so in some way, because I remember in 2019, the the, you know, the, the last time I think that I think there's probably been a time since then. And, 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 and we're speaking of the, the, the edition that came out, the one that came out just today, I think. But in 2019, there was an article that has been repeatedly sort of referenced. It's the it's the fed up, right? Fundraisers are fed up with their jobs and half yeah, of them. I remember it. Yeah, and and I was quoted in that myself and Jennifer Harris and a couple others were quoted. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah, and um, and I and I'm just sort of thinking, is is that even helpful, or is that even is that sort of spinning a narrative that's just you know, is the is the I guess what I'm asking is is sort of is the outcome of that conversation that gets stirred up every twelve to eighteen months, even sort of moving the needle on sort of changing that. Or do we need some kind of a, you know, is it the wrong story, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I, geez. I, I'm, I guess that's where I guess that's where one thing I maybe I don't, I don't know if I have a solution except for. I think, yeah, you're right. Maybe fundraisers are kind of we spend a lot of time talking to each other about this sort of about this sort of situation. Um, you know, my goal, again, I think I post occasionally on LinkedIn. My goal is like for just again, just for one person to maybe see and just think I want, you know, people to think just a little bit differently, you know, about, you know, how they again, how they're trying to get talent and how they're retaining it, honestly. Um it's it's a very it's a challenging situation i don't well, well so okay so one of the uh if you so the the two different tools that i introduced at that particular training when we were in the lehigh valley together one of them i started with those two loops those two cultural loops and i think i think a lot of us in the fundraising space sort of exist in what i call this intervening subculture and we sort of have this miserable lot that we've all sort of assumed responsibility for in our, you know, our circumstances very rarely ever seem to get better. And we never insist upon this more, what I would argue to be needs to be more of an integrated role. I think fundraisers, even to your original point, the idea that we're signing on for jobs, you know, where we're being, like what I said, we're being signed, signing on for jobs, we're being set up to fail. One of those fundamental ways to sort of figure that out is, is whether or not we're fully integrated into the culture. If you're just this, if you're just this, you know, subculture, 
that exists on the periphery of the organization, you're going to be in a miserable state and your fund, your donors are not going to experience the, they're not going to get much better of an experience. Um, and I think in some ways to get back to your, what, what I don't think was your question, but it seems like a very insightful one. Um, I almost wonder if that 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 article in the Chronicle almost perpetuates that. Does that make sense? I think yeah, I, I, that's yeah. I think it's interesting because they the Chronicle article brings up the fact that fundraising that's a key complaint of fundraisers is not being integrated. Now that that's see that's interesting to me because I started in you know a smaller human service organization at you know not right out of college but essentially and there and there was always you know maybe maybe you can relate to you know clients you've worked with there was always a, a push and pull between in that case when i worked there it was program and development so yeah um, yeah you, i mean and, and, tra- and trying to get program to understand you know what we do and failing frankly yeah Here, here's the question alex it would the, would the chronicle of philanthropy be more honest by just publishing an article every six to 12 months or 18 months that just says the job of a fundraiser sucks and there's nothing you can do about it you know if they were more forthright about that would we actually sort of own up to that figure that out why is that is it perhaps the existing systems the practices the status quo and 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 perhaps stop sort of coming up with all these other <laughs> explanations. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think the challenge is they inter- you interview like for, I mean, they obviously were working with survey data. I'm not saying, you know, a, a grant, I don't know if I'm going to be applying or being, you know, received for a job at the Chronicle anytime soon after our conversation here. I'm not um, either. I'm not either. I mean, no, and it's just, it's funny. It's not funny because like you read some really, some very tough stories. And, and I recognize people like that from those, you know, I've worked with in my community who are just, who are stretched extraordinarily thin. Um, and yeah, I think, I think you're right. I don't know what it is to, to, you know, to wake people up, but yeah, we have a tendency to kind of talk to ourselves and we have a tough time as fundraisers, especially in smaller organizations, kind of advocating on behalf of ourselves for the work we do. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's, de- it's deeply challenging, I think, in the sense that, you know, especially when I was in, in a smaller shop, more maybe what you, or even when I got to a larger situation where I started on a team that had 15, and by the time I left, it had eight. And, you know, the folks in that organization, you know, the top brass in that organization, they were, they were, by the time I left, they were less invested in major gifts because it wasn't predictable. So even in a bigger organization where you at one time had a pretty robust development staff, there's still this, this tendency to fall back into the lane one situation to, and this is nothing against grants or anything like that, but grants are, you know, a little more predictable. You write something, there's a submission date. You can expect an outcome in one form or another. Um, I had a, and Alex, I had a, I had a recent guest. I had a recent guest that said, uh, you know, that one of the things that we, that we're constantly sort of looking for in our world today is both safety and security. Uh, I'm sorry, safety and certainty, safety and certainty. And, and, and he pointed out, he said, you're not going to get, you you can get safety. We can create safety, but we can't create certainty. Um, You can actually create jobs. You can write job descriptions. You can actually create working environments that are safe to work in. Um, but the problem is, as, as my guest was talking about, John Alexander is the gentleman I'm talking about. What John was saying is, is that we, we're sort of, and I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on your use of the word predictability and uh, a couple of times here. We're, 
we're betting the we're betting more on the idea that we can somehow or another achieve predictability that we can build certainty into how these things sort of work and that's my critique on lane 1 that lane 1 is designed to sort of feed those desires for predictability efficiency predictability and control i mean is is the answer to your question that you started this conversation with alex that part of growing up and signing on for jobs that we're in which we can thrive is really about the idea of finding places where we can be safe, but also not where we can be not where we're going to be naive about what is actually predictable. That's yeah, that's well, that's a great, yeah, that's a great point. I think that's why I kind of, and again, I think when you talk about predictability and stuff, that the references back to you know what Barbara was writing and consume too. That you know, predictability is like that's you know, another, yeah, that's a young versus embracing unpredictability is part of you know, a part, a part of growing up. And you know, the inability, I think the inability to sort of, yeah, to sort of for you know, our field and to some degree to, to grow into that is a major challenge. I think what, you know, what I kind of, you know, like to write about is what, you know, is to tell, is to tell folks if they're looking to, you know, get into the field, like you do have to, you know, you have to be on the lookout for, you know, a hiring manager. What, what does the interview sound like? And what, what do they want you to do? If they talk sort of tangentially, oh yeah, we're really interested in doing major gifts. We have a couple board members who are interested in that, but they keep sort of sliding back into, you know, lane, lane one sort of language. Um, you know, are you ever going to, are you going to achieve what you want to, um, you know, are they, um, you know, are they, tr- are, is somebody, tr- you know, is somebody trust-based when they're talking with you? Do they trust that it's, it's okay if you're not at your desk all the time, cause you're out seeing donors. I've, you know, I've worked in an environment where, you know, if you weren't, you know, at one point where if you weren't at your desk, there was questions, you know, why aren't you at your desk at nine o'clock, those sorts of, you know, and that, again, those are, ch- again, I think in, until, uh, folks start to grow up a little bit and embrace the uncertainty, embrace the fact that it takes time to build, you know, build a real culture. You're going to be, uh, dealing with the same, you know, dealing with a lot of the same issues in terms of folks come and, you know, a year later they're gone. Obviously the Chronicle talked about some things that are moving in a positive direction perhaps, but again, they're, I don't want to call them necessary, you know, getting paid more, obviously that's important. Remote work, those are important things, but I mean, I'd be curious for your feedback on that too. Are those like, are those key issues or is there, I think, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what author said it, it might've been, um, I'm drawing a blank here, but, but posing, I, you know, well, well-known, well-known author, um, who talked a lot about, you know, what truly makes you happy in the job, you know, a is, you know, beyond your manager is autonomy. Um, yes, right. And do, yeah. And do you have, you know, do you have autonomy in your role where there's trust for you to do the work and does, you know, if your smaller shop is your executive director and your board have your back and are they willing to, uh, take the chance? So I'd be curious what you think even about like terms of remote work and, you know, making more money. Those are key important things, but I mean, what's, what's really the most important thing that's going to keep people around and keep them happy in their jobs and happy as fundraisers. Yeah. I mean, what we're advocating for I mean, you know, our three lanes well enough to understand what we're, what, where we sort of stand on a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, that lane one can be very automated. It can be outsourced and it can be driven by volunteers. So I think fundraisers need to consistently get their hands off of that sort of stuff, you know, full-time employed fundraisers, and they need to be very careful about looking at job descriptions that are overly invested in that lane one stuff. And then I think the answer to your question about remote work and um, and, and even when we come to conversations about like predictability, that's the reason why we call that middle lane, the messy middle lane, because the messy middle isn't, it, we're implying that it's very complex. It's unpredictable. It's not going to feel as efficient. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's focused on a much narrower slice of your donor population, but what you're also doing, and this gets back to, uh, 
to uh, to Barber's work is you're transitioning between what I said. I would say that you're transitioning between lane one and lane two. You're transitioning the relationship with the donor from that of a consumer to more something more like a mature citizen. You're actually engaging the donor in a relationship where your expectations of the donor can be much higher. And so I don't really give a damn how the fundraising actually happens. I don't care what how you're doing lane two fundraising. I don't, I'm not somebody who gets all hung up on the methods, but if you're not actually maturing that relationship and that relationship isn't yielding the opportunity for you on the fundraising side to have higher expectations of your donors, which is the point that Barber's making in his book, you're just, you're just, you're just raising, you're just sort of, you're stewarding these childlike relationships with your donors and, and, um, and ultimately not, not abling, you know, you're not allowing yourself to deliver on your mission. You're not going to get enough money from those. It's like dancing around in, um, in, uh, Munchkin land in, uh, you know, in the Wizard <laughs> of Oz. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, but again, I think, yeah, seeing, you know what, I guess what, you know, what's, what's heartening to me more is, you know, especially, you know, when I came to work for the Salvation Army, I think you can tell now and, and you know, I, I will, you know, I'll shamelessly plug, you know, not just the not just the the ministry itself, but, you know, I'll, I'll use this as an example of something that really impressed me, you know, when I started. And, you know, a the interview process wasn't ridiculous. It wasn't like, you know, 18, you know, as I've interviewed in higher ed before and it was terrifying the number of people they could try to squeeze into like one or two days and then tell you, you still have to maybe come back for another round to visit with other people. In this case, it was it was short and sweet. But, you know, what I liked is, you know, you could tell from, you know, conversation with, you know, with my boss that, you know, it was I, you know, I was talking about the work I was doing in a previous job, how I was kind of straddling corporate relations and events to some degree, and also major gift fundraising in one aspect. And she's like, well, that's not really how this role operates. Like, we expect that you would, you're going to work very hard with the portfolio that you're going to inherit. And I was like, great, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, one thing the Salvation Army offers that's interesting, I think, is, you know, we have somebody who actually works at like kind of a higher level at, at, at another, at our territorial level that is an associate director of major gifts and their goal is, and their goal is to just make you better at your job. So anytime you need to troubleshoot something that's going on with a donor, you run into something, you run into a giving question, you're not quite sure how to answer and you need to get back to him. There's a legit, there's a legitimate person who works as a resource to help you through those challenging conversations. So it's not just a supervisor who's dealing also with, you know, internal politics, financial, you know, financial reporting, those sorts of the really fun part of fundraising where you have to report out, you know, what you're actually raising and uh, manage upward to some degree. Um, the fact that they actually have sort of a counselor, you know, on staff to help people all throughout, say, the Eastern Territory in the Salvation Army, I think is I think that's a again. It's not replicable in a lot of in a lot of shops, but I think it's something that you know that one ought to think about when you're sitting down to interview or to talk, you know, to talk with your hiring manager about a job. Um, what you know, what are they get? What would these folks like to do to make me successful? Are they going to let me work autonomously? Uh, those are kind of two well, key I, things I look for in any role. Huh? Alex, I don't think I think there's a lot of organizations that, quite frankly, are just scared of fundraising, and so they approach so. And they're and it's not that they're scared specific. You know, they would probably never articulate it that way. But I, and I don't know that they don't up to the fact that they're scared of fundraising any more than they're scared of money. That they're scared of wealth. That they're scared of major donors, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in some ways, some of what you're sort of picking up on here about the interview process is you might be able to 
you might be able to sort of discern, you might be able to pick up on some of that risk aversion, I guess you could say, some of that hesitancy that comes with everything that the fundraiser represents. So if they're interviewing you in such a way that suggests that, you know, they're just trying to eliminate all the possible um, negative outcomes that could possibly come with forming this relationship. My guess is, Alex, they're going to approach the relationships with their donors the same way. You can really over, I think what you're saying to us this afternoon is that you can really overthink and you can really overcomplicate the interview process. My thought is, is that, that that same employer is inclined to overthink and overcomplicate the donor, the donor relationship process the same way. Does that make sense? Oh, you know, yeah, it's actually, it's, you know, that's, that's a great point, actually, because the funny thing is when you get into what do you, and maybe this is again, not, not for everybody. What, what first got me like irritated at some point where I started actually write, you know, write a little bit on LinkedIn is I saw one of those like real snoozer, you know, sort of articles, the 10 best qualities of a fundraiser. And I'm like, sure. Uh, okay. I'm not, right. <laughs> so uh, where I'm going with this is, you know, is that, you know, one thing, one quality is that, oh, well, you know, I can't understand how introverts do this job because, you know, it must be exhausting. Like, again, just, you know, extroverts are the only, you know, folks qualified to do this. And this is, again, what, what is the interview process? What is it? What is it? Um, what are they looking for where they're talking? It's all, you know, in a lot of cases, somebody who's extroverted, somebody who can work a room. I'm, you know, I'd say I'm more an introvert or at least somewhere in between. Um, so I find that personally, like, yeah, f- folks, you know, folks don't get me. They, again, making the whole process again, yeah, too much, too, much too complicated. And when you actually start to go out there and work with donors, as I have in this, in this new role, I, you know, being an introvert has worked, you know, incredibly well for me because you spend a lot of time listening. And frankly, I'm, and I think my initial point was, I don't know exactly if there's a right or wrong personality type for the role, but you know, I, I love the work and I don't find, you know, I don't find that position all that challenging. And I think if more, you know, smaller shops realize it's not that challenging. If we hire the right person, who's, who's an excellent listener, who's really, who's dedicated, you know, at their core to the mission, you know, I frankly, when I was playing golf tournaments, I was miserable. I hated it. It was far more challenging for far less reward and return. Uh, and uh, this is like the message I want to like reach to people is like it's it, it, to start relationships. It's a little challenging. It's, ch- it's tough to pick up the phone to ask for that first visit. It's tough, man. I'm not saying it's not. But at the same time, when you're working with people who are committed to the donors that are committed to your mission, I mean, it's it's a I mean, it's really a pleasure. It's a joy. And I've never found that. And you run into challenges, of course, you know, and challenging questions. But that doesn't take away from the fact that I think it's a far, you know, easier, it's far easier and more lucrative than, yeah, than playing a golf tournament. So I feel bad for, you know, slagging on golf tournaments here so much. But yeah, I, I can't I can't uh, I can't affirm your opinion or your observation about the the sort of the introvert versus uh, extrovert sort of question as it relates to fundraising. I can tell you that I'm a, I am tend to, on the Myers-Briggs, for example, score relatively extroverted. But I can tell you that I've watched many individuals that are far more introverted raise far more money, be far better listeners. You know, guys like me can't keep their mouth shut. We don't know how to shut up. I mean, we've we've actually worked with clients where they just like myself have to be told, look, you've got to shut up at some point and stop talking and let the donor actually have a, you know, put a word in, get a word in edgewise. Um, because, you know, someone like yourself knows how to sit across the lunch table, have a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Smith or whoever you're meeting with and actually listen and therefore craft that proposal in a way that aligns with what your organization's needs are. 
mixed with what their expectations are, you know, what they're inclined to give to. Um, and oftentimes someone like myself, who's, you know, gregarious and friendly and, and always got something to say, oftentimes misses that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, de- I definitely understand. I think I mean, I've worked for I've worked for plenty of extroverts. And, you know, I think I think I'm more again, I maybe this isn't even the direction I started in at the beginning. But for some reason, I was like, I, whenever I talk to when I talk with Jason, I want to get that introvert extrovert piece in there a little bit, because I think it's I think it's a hindrance. I think the idea that only extroverts, you know, really are positive at, at this sort of work. I mean, there's incredible, obviously, yourself included, incredibly, you know, talented fundraisers who are you know, outgoing and gregarious, you know, I always, I also say to, you know, employers that are looking there, like, you know, the Chronicle again in their article saying, oh, we're looking at people with some different backgrounds, usually to get a job in higher ed fundraising, you had to also before you had to be raising money, but not just anywhere in higher ed fundraising, you know, at a liberal arts college, it was probably at a liberal arts school. So again, think outside the box, not just in terms of, you know, background, but also personality type, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, my advice, and this this a lot this lines up very this lines up very much with our argument between the three lanes, is is that you get is is as young as you possibly could be in your fundraising career. I'm speaking of tenure in the work, not age necessarily, but you know, get in front of the donor. My argument is get in front of the donor as early as possible, which is you know, lane two is direct directly interacting with the donor on a routine basis, um, and I think. I think fundraisers need to be need to be increasingly discerning about whether or not that's what the job description says. Um, those jobs that keep you very distanced from the donor, those are that's all necessary work. That's all important work, but does it necessarily need to be done by a you know a person on the payroll? And can it not be done more efficiently by you know, like I said, you know, we've got plenty of friends who are in direct response who can do that for you. Um, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure the Salvation Army is an example. You guys have direct response companies that help you guys sort of pull that sort of stuff off. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. And so you the, the the insight there is, is to recognize that your direct response partner, for example, is far more knowledgeable, far, has far greater scale and can do that with 10 or 12 other organizations while they're doing that with the Salvation Army. And then and then what that allows you to do is sort of free yourself up from having to have that expertise and allows you to double down on investing in the expertise that makes you shine at that lunch table. That's, that's yeah, the message. That's, that's essentially the message that you got at that event that we were at a couple of years ago was, was, uh, you know, draw a line between lanes one and two and, and bet your job, you know, bet your professional career on lane two is what I've, what I'm, people are generally hearing from me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I did. Yeah, I read, you know, uh, you know, some of the dialogue you were involved in when you talked about, you know, tools and somebody who was an event, you know, an event specialist who was really good at that. Well, during the pandemic, what good is being, you know, the tool itself is not going to allow you to mature and grow with the donors, you know, unfortunately, I mean, it's just a reality, Uh, you know, it's going to be those folks, you know, like, I, I mean, that's, again, I'm, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of my own job, which I really like, but, um, yeah, I mean, you're going to get the most satisfaction and, you know, the work for the, say the Salvation Army. I mean, it was those, those, those folks that are lane two or perhaps even lane three that are the ones that are coming to you then are coming to the table. They know what they have a mature relationship with the Salvation Army. They say, Hey, man, it's getting crazy out there. How can we help you out? I mean, that's the conversation you want to be having where you know the donors well enough. They know the organization well enough to come and say, we want to help you without me having to call and schedule even a lunch. So. 
Alex, we lose our listeners about 45 minutes in, so right. we're right at about that point. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to let uh, I do want to ask you if somebody's got a usually people who are my guests uh, hear from our listeners more often than I do. Um, somebody's going to follow up with you and say, hey, I want to keep that conversation going. I've got a thought on something you said. Uh, how would you like people to uh, reach out to you and how do they find you? Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've noticed, Jason, that you have a lot of folks who've like written books and run their own consulting firms that have some. I'm just uh, I'm a I'm a lowly major gift officer. Uh, easiest way to find me is on my name's Alex Dapkowitz. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, that's pretty much the only social media that I exist on any longer. So, uh, yeah, that's that, that's where anybody can find me if they, you know, should they be uh, interested in hearing how they could uh, <laughs> hire and retain fundraisers. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great conversation, Alex. It has certainly been a pleasure. I look forward to being being in the room with you very soon. Uh, in the meantime, you're always welcome back. All right. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure being here. Appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.